You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's Saturday, it's 5 o'clock. That means it's the time when myself, Andre Pru, and my co-host, Maroki Tong, take over the airwaves. How's it going, Maroki? Yellow. It is an interesting... It's been an interesting couple of weeks, Andre, because um, last week was International Women's Day on the 8th. Mm-hmm. Um, although we sort of approached it in the lines of International Women's History Month. I don't I don't even remember what the terminology is, but I guess <laughs> they're trying to make it more than a day. We're trying to you know talk about celebrating women... For a month, I have many personal opinions about it, but I know a lot of people really want to try and celebrate the successes of women. Um, and of course, us, you know, doing a show about food and wine or, or food and drinks and just like hospitality, there's a lot of conversations about what it's like to be a woman in this kind of industry, whether it be in the back of house, the front of house, um, speaking, you know, being a writer about it. So you showed me something interesting andre on instagram recently that pickled my fancy to have a conversation about this yeah um it's an ad campaign that's being launched by miller light and i know when we're not talking about food and wine you and i don't mind getting into the odd debate at least having conversations conversations about uh what's going on here um but this one caught my attention in particular because of their spokesperson ilana glazer who is an extremely outspoken, uh, left-leaning comedian, someone who's very funny. I highly recommend you watch Broad City. But uh, here's a clip that I had to send your way uh, when it caught my attention. Here's a little known fact. Women were among the very first to brew beer ever. From Mesopotamia to the Middle Ages to colonial America, women were the ones doing the brewing. Centuries later, how did the industry pay homage to the founding mothers of beer? They put us in bikinis. Wow. (laughs) I mean, she's funny, and it's it's meant to be like a little bit tongue in cheek and really funny. But uh, I mean, the ad then goes on. It's it, it's it's we know right away from the first few seconds of it. It's a bit of a critique of how the beer industry traditionally markets its product. But uh, here, here's here's how it, it progresses. It's time beer made it up to women. So today, Miller Lite is on a mission to clean up not just their shit, but the whole beer industry's shit. Miller Lite has been scouring the internet for all this and buying it back so that they can turn it into good for women brewers. Literally, good All right, so the bad stuff that she's talking about are literally like every pinup calendar, plastered with beer logos, you know, bikini lady cutouts, merchandise, and they're turning it into compost and donating the compost to female brewers for them to grow hops. I think when we'll watch advertisements like this too, right? We regularly want to feel like the big brands are looking out for us. Like we want to regularly feel like that they are responsible <laughs> for what they're doing um, and that they might be actually doing good for the world, which is why, you know, there's corporate responsibility codes on websites or sustainability initiatives that we're trying to look for, but inherently you know, the the, crit, the critic inside of me, or the cynic inside of me, some I might say. Cynic, just... but, but I guess this is one of the rare times, too, where... It's, sorry, I don't mean to, like, to like hop on your point as well, though, but it's also, like, you know, I sent this to you because it caught me... Like, I was of two minds, because every time I have a corporation that is trying to do something that makes me feel good, immediately my response is, what are you selling me? What are you selling me? Yeah. And the thing that caught my attention on this, though, was because of their spokesperson. Like, it, it, if you follow Ilana on social media... Uh, she's going to protests. She's very. She's made that very much a part of her brand is sticking up for marginalized communities and sticking up for women in particular. So the fact that that Miller Lite 
got her as a spokesperson was one of the things where I do think it lends it a little bit of credibility in my eyes. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. And I mean, I, I also similarly looked her up after you, you know, showed me the show me show me the commercial and it immediately brought back to me some of the commercials that didn't go quite well. There was one that happened a few years ago that came by Pepsi that came under quite a bit of backlash because it brought forward, you know, spokespeople that may or may not have cared to ever participate in a protest, <laughs> but they showed it in the light of protest. Oh, the famous Kylie Jenner uh, commercial. Wait, was it Kylie Kendall or was it Kendall? I mean, it's it was Kendall. it's one of them. I I just I cannot stand that family and anything they sort of <laughs> they sort of stand for. But it was just like I just remember the backlash. Like it is iconic how how poorly that commercial was received. For sure. And then in response to that, um, Heineken. I don't know if it was in response to that, but let's just say that soon afterwards, Heineken put out a commercial as well um, called "Open Your World" for anyone who wants to see the full thing on YouTube about how, you know, you could bring a divided world together to create a more, I guess, like tolerant environment, so to say. Feminism today is man-hating. I would describe myself as a feminist, 100%. So essentially what this commercial does is that it brings people from extremely disparate point of views, like in this, in, you know, the one that you played in the clip, Andre, a man who says he's not a feminist versus a woman who says she is, and then a man who says he does not support trans people, um, putting them in the same room with a transgendered woman and essentially showing them if they, you know, if you put them in and they have a conversation, they will find more connection with each other than they think. And then it kind of closes the commercial with them enjoying a cold pint of Heineken beer and how they can actually be friends together. And this one, on one hand, met a lot of public acclaim. And then it also met similar criticism that basically said that this is, one contrived and two it doesn't actually create the inclusive environment that we think um that they're trying to sell and mm. what are your thoughts on that andre mm, like like i said it's the immediate suspicion that i have at the beginning when companies are selling stuff to me um whether or not the messaging is a part of the culture of the corporation you know like to mm -hmm. to preach a message of inclusivity and i think in the heineken example in in particular though um you have to be very, very careful when you're choosing people from um, points of view that are just straight up hateful, right? Like the yeah. um, the example that they had were an anti-trans person and the, the feminist, like the view, the anti-feminist that they had was exactly that, an anti-feminist. And I mean, there was, I guess, a tiny silver lining, I think, in it where... Um, you know, it looks like the minds of some of these people were changed a little bit, being confronted with the thing that they said that they hate. But it's just like packaging it up. Uh, it does have a bit of an, an icky feel to it. And it. I don't mind being made to feel uncomfortable when I'm consuming media. But it just does feel a little disingenuine when it's wrapped up in a corporate bow, you know? And yeah, that's, and, and that's sort of where, I, and this is why I sent you the <laughs> sent you the Miller Lite commercial at the beginning. Is it's just like, is this actually going to help change the fabric of the um, of the beer industry, or is this just uh, a flash in the pan marketing ploy for Miller? I guess here's the one point I will give to Miller. Let's say if Miller is actually going out spending their own dollars to research, find all these pieces of material, and buy it, that's them putting money where their mouth is right 
And that's not quite the same way as just, you know, hiring a bunch of people, putting them in a room, not really doing the work after that. And as a follow-up point, I know Heineken very shortly afterwards actually had a second commercial that they ended up having to pull because it had racist intonation in it because the, the beers, I guess the slogan was lighter is better. Um, And that kind of showcased that then you maybe were not putting in the work. If you're going to put a massive message out about inclusivity, then you would hope that you would have better marketing practices overall, right? That you would comb and look at your language with a fine tooth comb. And clearly, you know, once they benefited from that campaign, threw it out and came back with some more thoughtless campaigns. So in this Miller's case, I... I would give them a little bit of kudos for actually putting their money where their mouth is and buying and donating, you know, buy like buying the materials back and then donating the hops to women producers afterwards. And I would say like that's, you know, you can call it a small step, you can call it a big step, but at least that's some sort of step forward. You know, I think that's the first time I've heard anyone say anything nice about a large brewer in quite some time. Um, on that note... Uh, I know you and I, I guess more so me than you, have had many discussions about, you know, what the best restaurants are in Toronto, about the Michelin Guide in particular. Um, There's an article from the New York Times that is actually about Toronto and some of the best restaurants in Toronto. uh, And it might not be the places that you think. So stick around after the break on Tasting Together, where we dive into the best eats in Toronto, but not the Michelin ones. You're listening to 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Andre, you and I are always talking about where we should eat next, especially because Tasting Together airs at 5 p.m., so everyone's planning (laughs) dinner time. And if not tonight, folks, if we don't give you the recommendation you're looking for, at least you have something for the next time, right? Definitely. And I know you and I, I, I've full-on admitted that I definitely have some expensive tastes tastes when it comes to dining. I don't mind dropping the cash on at a Michelin star restaurant, not in Toronto, but in other countries. Um, but I've also said that I think the best places in Toronto are not fine dining. I'm going to say that in, in air quotes. And I saw an article in the New York times uh, that featured uh, Toronto based writer Suresh Doss, who is, is very well known in the city. He uh, writes for the CBC and the Toronto star. He also does quite a bit of posting on social media. So definitely look him up. But like his whole MO has been to find the off the beaten path places that most people wouldn't normally, um, you know, maybe venture out to visit or places that don't have the white tablecloth or any tablecloths or frankly, tables a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And he was describing in the most eloquent language about the Sri Lankan place that he went to, I believe in Scarborough, where, you know, they poured fermented batter into a wok and then the the chef like gripped the pan and swirled it and it turned into this hopper, like the Sri Lankan dish. It's a thin, lacy, bowl-shaped pancake and that they have to be made to order because otherwise they deflate and they crumble. And the, and uh, Suresh has talked about bringing so many chefs there and they would eat it and be like, this is the best thing I've eaten this year. And it's also so different than what you would have in the city. So yeah, the restaurant that was mentioned was the new Caliani, which is a place I've never eaten at, but it is on the list because that menu sounds, uh, sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the things he mentioned is just that, you know, you have to be willing to maybe travel to places like Scarborough or go to these strip malls where you find these little tiny restaurants, um, 
you know, likely with signage that is not in English at all, or maybe has the tiniest little English subtitle and just take a chance on it. And I think Suresh, I would say, I think you and I can both agree is probably a consummate expert when it comes to finding spots off the different path. But I, I will admit, like, I've gone to Scarborough a lot. A lot of my friends and family are from there and live there. And I haven't stumbled upon this place myself. You know, I, I find it difficult to figure out where to start when you're looking for places like this. You know, when you go to smaller towns, you go to smaller towns um, all over Canada, and a lot of people have their favorite pubs or their favorite restaurants or this or that. I mean, they don't have the big shiny factor that, uh, you know, most restaurants in Toronto have, even places that maybe don't reach the standard of white tablecloth. But I mean, they they definitely have that like local feel to it where you can go by recommendations based on people. But I think one of the problems in Toronto for myself, and I guess this is one where it's um, it is a white Canadian problem, is I have no idea where to start when I'm looking to explore culture through food. I'm definitely someone who likes to eat first and ask questions later. It's definitely easier when I have a tour guide to take me along. So, you know, having a list from Suresh or having... Uh, friends be able to take me to Chinese restaurants that, um, you know, I've done the Chinese banquet, but I've had a tour guide with me on that. It's just like it's intimidating to figure out where to start and, and where to look. But also, you know, curb appeal really does still, I think, uh, affect a lot of people's choices when they go to eat. I mean, I would argue that not to say that it probably isn't somewhat a white person problem, but as a, you know, I'm Chinese, but I'm not Indian and I'm not Sri Lankan and I'm not Mexican. So when I go to neighborhoods and I've, I've been, you know, one of my friends just recently told me out in the Jane and Lawrence area, there's a massive, you know, Mexican community that just makes delicious tacos, super authentic, but they cost $2 a taco as opposed to the ones in downtown, which cost $9 a taco. And I remember one time we talked about meeting and he's Argentinian. So um, I was saying to him, well, we should, uh, you know, go, uh, we should go and eat tacos in the area. He's like, I'm not going to eat in your neighborhood, Maroki. And I was like, okay, fair. Mm. <laughs> right? And so sometimes I guess the, the thing that we just need to say to ourselves and say to each other is maybe just be a little brave, right? Show up, be scared, make mistakes. When I'm in China, I don't speak Mandarin, right? So I'm Chinese, but that doesn't mean I actually know how to navigate China, on my own and in places like that you have no choice right like let's say if i you know if i go to france or if i go to spain and i have you show up at places you literally have no idea what you're about to order and sometimes you just have to trust what the recommendations are and you just have to be an adventurous eater okay being an adventurous eater is one thing though but here's here's my counter argument to, to you though is the opening paragraph of this article at a tiny strip mall where the painted parking lines had faded completely some time ago you know and and Let's just paint that picture where the windows are probably dirty, uh, you know, grease covered on the inside from years of what's being cooked inside. You step foot inside the restaurant. You probably hear the ding of the uh, of the door as you open that door. You see these tables from 1970s that are all scratched up. Some of them are probably pretty badly chipped. You're seeing, you know, cafeteria chairs where the upholstery is faded, maybe not in the best shape. Um and and I mean, in an age, especially especially where like people are really concerned about health issues and whatnot too, is it's just like, is this something where we've maybe taken things too far? We need to be a little bit more risky in terms of what we do. That or I mean, are you are you eating at the place that I just recommended to you, unless someone else recommended it to you? 
I grew up eating at places like this, so I'm really not the right person to ask. Well, no, you're exactly um, the right person those... to ask. Huh? You're you're exactly the right well, person to ask then. Because so, so, I, I want you to I, sell it to me. I want you to sell it to me. Make me make me less afraid of that. Yeah. So I mean, I think sometimes you do need the support of like a friend or a community, right? I grew up in those places because these were the places my parents took me to, the places my relatives took me to. Um, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in a rural town outside of Kitchener Waterloo. So, you know, the dated old place that the everyone knows is the best place is where we are. And maybe and maybe maybe the argument should be spun is in a very technologically developed society where, you know, we have all these reviews, we have all the Googles, and we don't really just go and explore, or just listen to word of mouth anymore. Mm. We have to start trusting the word of mouth of people more often. So I actually, you know, talking about small towns, and you brought this up, it, it actually triggered a thought in my brain. Some of the hidden gems like when i say quote unquote hidden gems like the secret neighborhood spots i've discovered in a lot of these towns is usually by necessity so i have a mm. memory of going up to thunder bay once um i had to go and do a performance there back when i was a theater actor we arrived late nothing was open there was one spot open we had no choice but to go to this one spot but my god that they serve some really dang good food including this thing they had called banana ketchup which i found out years later actually is a is a thai thing but I would have never known if it wasn't by necessity. And I think that happens at a lot of small places I've gone to. It's I've gone to it because it's the only place open or you don't know where to go and you are walking up down the street and that's it, right? And some of those days were before the days I had access to my little internet computer, my little phone computer to tell me because when I traveled, maybe I didn't have good Wi-Fi. Maybe I didn't have Wi-Fi and I just had to trust. And so maybe Suresh is doing God's work in some way, being able to take some of these restaurants that are only reliable through, through word of mouth and putting them on platforms for the greater public to experience in a technologically advanced era. I think you're probably right. And actually, you telling that story reminds me of an experience that I recently had uh, in downtown Hamilton. And you talk about being a place out of necessity. I had a, a very busy day. I was checking out a couple breweries down here and... Um, I wanted, I needed lunch. I just needed lunch. And I walked up and down James Street. It was, uh, I think, a Monday or Tuesday where a lot of places are closed. And I ate at a place called Great Red Peppers, which is a, uh, a Szechuan restaurant. And, um, you know, I, this is not to throw any shade at the people of, of Hamilton, but I had a really great meal. I went and checked the Google reviews like while we were there. And it has a 3.6 star rating. I've mentioned on the show before, my wife's a chef, and she generally won't eat at any places that are below four stars. And when I started reading through the reviews, a lot of the critique and a lot of the bad reviews were just literally from people who didn't understand the menu. And just like they, mm -hmm. they weren't expecting the food to be what it was. And I think it could just be, you know, issues with, with language barrier, whatever the case may be. But like, you know, it, it definitely did give me a bit of... um a reevaluation of whether or not the star rating on, on Google is something that you can really take to the bank all the time. Well, this ties in very well to what we want to talk about in the next segment of Tasting Together after the break about how do we interpret what is actually good dining and is there some adjustments we need to make in our language and our understanding of food of different cultures. That's coming up on 640 Toronto. <laughs> This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. 
Maroki, I know you did a lot. Well, we both did a lot of reading this week. It's not often that we get flooded with just a whole torrent of really interesting articles to talk about that pertain to what's happening in the food scene in Toronto. But you found one in particular that you brought to my attention. Yeah, Andre, there was this article I found on Bon Appetit, and it, it's something that we've actually discussed a lot um, with our various interviews with um, chefs across Toronto, but it's the concept of how food in Canada or North America is beginning to combine more elements of different cultures together. And, you know, in this, you know, terminology of fusion cuisine, quote unquote, I, I think that word has fallen out of favor a lot. And so people are trying to come up with new terminology new concepts and this article they talk about new american and they're saying like what does that even mean like is that actually what we want to define cuisine that brings together different cultures now and what are the words that are flawed and are outdated and we probably shouldn't use anymore Hmm. interesting yeah I, I do think that there definitely needs to be a progression in language because generally when you use the word fusion or new american often you're still just talking about food that's coming from cultures that are not white people and it's kind of a i guess a softer way of saying exotic i don't know is that even an okay term to say i mean it- i don't think so i mean honestly and i think they actually bring it up in the article they talk about there's a quote in here that says so-called quote-unquote foreign food is used as cheap marketing something oh, yeah. international thrown in to make the familiar seem exotic so even in this quote alone the term exotic is sort of painted in a negative light right yeah, I and I think the context of the word exotic, I mean, context of all words is really important, but I mean, it is something that does drive me nuts uh, when I go to the grocery store and they have, and I've still seen seen it in some grocery stores uh, where they have their, their international section labeled as ethnic foods. And when you go down the aisle, it's literally just ethnic foods to them are food from people who are not white. It's, it's, mm-hmm. la- it's lazy, it's bad, like there's, there's nothing wrong with labeling it as Mexican food. Mexican cuisine, South Asian cuisine, Vietnamese cuisine, like label the ingredients where they come from. Mm -hmm. I guess on a more positive light about the article, what they're trying to say is that there's this new wave of chefs, um, you know, whether they be the children of immigrants or even people who are immigrants trying trying to reclaim their experiences. Right. Either because they have they themselves maybe are not cooking exclusively food of their own culture and they want to tie it in. I mean, when we talked to Chef Nick Liu, it was a little bit about that. Right. Him bringing in his experiences as a as a formally trained French chef and then tying into the roots of his Chinese culture to make what he decided to call New Asian cuisine. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it is fascinating to see how I mean, I always find it fascinating to see just how. French cuisine, or the, or we should say French techniques, have essentially taken over the whole planet. I mean, if you're looking at really mm-hmm. great restaurants in a lot of places, a lot of other countries, you know, even if they are true to the true to their culture, and I guess that's the other thing too is we can talk about what definition of true culture means. Geez, we're unpacking a lot here, um, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's still like you know, French influence is, is on something. But are, like, are we just at the point where you know, fusion just? doesn't exist it's just food and especially in places like north america where it is so culturally diverse it's is it just inevitable that you're going to see uh multiple culture multiple cultures on a menu or on a plate possibly i think the fear for a lot of people is whether people will see this terminology and we just brought it up in our last segment right like they'll see this food and they'll wonder is it good 
Yeah. Right. If you, you know, and that's why naming conventions is so important. So I think a lot about Chinese Canadian food, right? right? When you drive through every small town, you'll always see a place that says Chinese Canadian restaurant, where they'll probably say something like spring rolls and French fries or egg rolls and French fries or chop suey and, and French fries. Only fairly, yes. And French fries. It's only fairly recently that I think Chinese people have started reclaiming what Chinese Canadian food means and the history around that and have categorized it as its own unique, um, brand of cuisine and style of cuisine that is different from Chinese food. So you're not saying now this is inauthentic Chinese food versus authentic Chinese food. It's that Chinese Canadian food was born out of a history of Chinese immigrants in Canada who had to learn how to cook and develop cuisine with extreme limitations being immigrants in a country who didn't have citizenship in Canada. Right. But it took a long time for us to reclaim that. So when people are beginning to make these new versions of I'm going to, you know, for lack of a better term, um, quote unquote, fusion cuisine. So like in this article, one of the restaurant Bonnie's in Brooklyn, it talked about how it makes this new vision of Cantonese American food. So using salted duck egg custard on French toast or chasu as a hash for brunch um, or, you know, as a rib for dinner. So what they're struggling is, is that they're making this. But what do you call it now? And what do you call it in a way that will attract people to your restaurant so that they are not turned off because of preconceived notions around the names? I mean, that was something I had to deal with in the last segment, the story I told about the Szechuan restaurant in downtown Hamilton. It's sort of like the opposite problem, though, where as far as I could tell, um, the food is quite authentic. It's not um, egg rolls and french fries on the menu of, of that particular restaurant. Um, and I guess just one thing for you to revisit, it's, it's something I've actually found particularly fascinating as well, too, because I know when I first moved to Toronto in 2007, it wasn't just um, dealing with Asian cuisines, but just cuisines in general. The word authentic was something that was becoming very, very important. And what you've talked about with Chinese Canadian cuisine, there's a really great book by Anne Hui, who is a journalist with the Globe and Mail. She wrote a book called Chop Sui Nation, which really just tells that story about um how the children and grandchildren of immigrants are now inheriting their their parents and grandparents uh, Canadian Chinese restaurants reclaiming the cuisine and what you're talking about what's really exciting about in the Bon Appetit article is are we now going to see that next level where it's not just people reclaiming it and being like yes this is Chinese cuisine that developed outside of China it doesn't make it any less Chinese it developed because of the circumstances but now we're getting to the point where we're seeing these people who have have taken uh, ownership of these restaurants, taking ownership of the salad cuisine, and now elevating it by adding elements of other cultures, adding other techniques. Like, I, I wonder what the next incarnation of the chicken ball is going to be. Mm-hmm. Although you brought up a really interesting word that has come under a lot of fire, which is the term elevated. Because Joshna uh-huh. Maharaj, who's a chef activist and author of Take Back to Trade, she actually was quoted recently. I follow her on Instagram. She was watching a show called The Great Soul Food Cookoff, and there was this quote from Chef. Kwame Onwachi, who was actually a competitor on Top Chef, he was saying that nothing needs to be elevated. The gold stand, the gold standard is already here. We just need to adjust our eyes to see it. And he was specifically talking about African and American food in that context. So I it's the that, concept I, of to, to be fair. Do though, we I, need to put it in a white? Do we need to put a white tablecloth on top of it all for it to be considered great food? I, but I think that that's that's it. Though is the word elevate for me doesn't mean white tablecloth. As someone who's been on this show very often being critical of white table white tablecloth restaurants as being the peak and pinnacle of what is good. I do think you can talk about elevating things, right? If we take a look at at Toronto and the food scene, um, if you take 
McDonald's next to Burger's Priest. I don't think that saying that Burger's Priest is an elevated hamburger compared to McDonald's is uh, a, a bad way to use that word. And I think it's apt just given the fact that Burger's Priest is a is a chain and now a successful chain that prides itself on higher quality ingredients, uh, freshness of, of ingredients versus, uh, you know, McDonald's, which is priding itself on speed and consistency regardless of the global chain, right? But I'll challenge and say that nor that both Burgers Priest, that both Burgers Priest and McDonald's are qu- are known as North American cuisine. So this is a ta- a conversation that's specifically targeting cuisines that are coming out of different cultures or non like non American cultures, whether it's Chinese, Italian, Mexican, Jamaican. Is that those foods have been seen as subpar, and when you call it elevating it you're basically stating that the only way it can be presented in a way that is attractive to the north american market is to shiny it up so to say and that sometimes we just need to appreciate the food for exactly what it is and that's it and let's not try and throw gold dust on it you know i wonder what someone like trey sanderson would have to say about this exact point and maybe we should look into getting him back on the show because it is something that he has talked about is he's really trying to add a more polished flair to the Caribbean cuisine that he's preparing. And he's trying to bring that to the white tablecloth. That's that's one of the things he talked to us about. I definitely think we need a round table with people like Trey and Joshna, who is Toronto based as well, and probably can speak to it in a much more eloquent way than we can. Will they cook for us? We can beg. <laughs> uh... I think this is as good a place as any for us to put this conversation back on the shelf. Uh, pun intended. Definitely some good food for thought, especially given the last couple segments. Um, and I know that my homework for the next couple weeks is to try to be a little bit more brave and look for some of these restaurants that are in strip malls uh, with faded signs and faded chairs and go experience the cuisine and try to not think about it as something that needs to be elevated. And the funny part is, is that our next segment after the break, we're going to continue down the unknowns as well, even though we're talking about wine. So stick around past the break. This is Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Well, folks, this week, Andre, Danny and I are talking about something a little different in the wine world. Danny, what are we talking about? Yes, a colleague of ours has been uh, looking into this for us, and uh, he basically did a report on hybrid grapes, and uh, this is what he had to say. So the wine industry is sounding the alarm that climate change could have a huge impact on what we're pouring in our glass, and some are suggesting that wine growers might have to change what kind of grapes they're growing in order to stay solvent. Global's Dave Woodard has more. Now, before anyone suggests you'll have to start drinking wine you don't want to... I am not drinking any it doesn't look like climate change will be a problem anytime soon. Dr. Deb Ingalls is with Brock University's Cool Climate Enology and Viticulture Institute and says technology has a lot to do with that. Our industry is very resilient. They're working on building resiliency all the time. One of the things the industry has produced to combat extreme storms is special wind turbines. And actually raise that temperature 4 to 5 degrees Celsius so that the, the vine never sees that really cold temperature. She says genetic modifications and other things the industry can turn to, but as of yet, it's something many producers, especially those in the traditional markets of France and Italy, have a hard time accepting. Dave Woodard, Global News. I bet there's a lot of folks who are probably asking just what are hybrid grapes anyway? 
Uh, I think one thing a lot of people may not realize is the grapes that go into making wine are not your average grocery store grapes. Um, you could go to the grocery store, buy these grapes, crush them, and ferment something with them. But chances are it's not going to taste very good. The uh, species of grape that is used to make grape is called Vitis vinifera. And hybrid grapes are what is happening because we have grapes that are indigenous to North America that are actually quite hardy. They can handle the cold winter. They are very hardy and handle um, they're resistant to many types of diseases. Um, and what a lot of really smart people, smarter than you and I, Danny, but Maroki probably knows a little bit more about this because she's got a green thumb. Um, people are actually doing experiments where they're trying to breed or you know genetically manipulate North American grapes with these European noble wine growing grapes. And those are hybrids. I think the most popular one in Ontario that people would know about right now is Baco Noir or Vidal, which is generally used for ice wine. But um, you'll be seeing a few other wineries, I think, notably in Prince Edward County and outside of the Niagara or Lake Erie North Shore growing region, starting to experiment more with different hybrids. I was just going to ask, um, so what kind of grapes are we talking about like that are that have a tough time growing in the climate here? Oh, I mean... Everything. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, if you take a look, like in Prince Edward County to the east, east of Toronto, there they have to bury the vines, and it's actually been the fascinating thing, like over my career as a as a wine writer here, is just seeing that you know you imagine things like agriculture, you know, even 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 to the point where people are growing food or whatever, you you imagine it's a very traditional and slow moving industry. You don't think you have a hard time, you know, imagining people in white lab coats working on technologies that make agriculture better, but. Maroke, I think even even you and I have seen over the past few years, like the rise of things like geotextiles and things like that is people in lab coats at very fancy universities are trying to find ways to make agriculture better and make it easier, right. make it so that plants can stay alive in different climates. It's basically people are preparing for climate change. Well, I mean, even if you drive along Niagara, it was mentioned in the interview, these wind turbines, you can see them, right? If you drive by, you know, uh, more well-known wineries like Stratus, per se, you can actually see the giant wind turbines at work. They're actually trying to push hot air downward so that the vineyards stay warmer through the winter and they can weather the winters more. And I don't know if we've talked too much about how climate affects grape growing in Ontario, but, you know, I think we've mentioned it several times on the show that, you know, if the winters are harsh, the vines die. And then you have no grapes. And there's a reason why in certain areas like Prince Edward County and the like, you won't see Cabernet Sauvignon being grown there at all. Like in Prince Edward County, you're essentially seeing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay as grapes that do handle a bit of a cooler climate. But even those are very susceptible to the winter. And there have been a lot of wineries, Prince Edward County, Niagara, or otherwise, that have seen their vineyards die year over year in the winter. And some of these hybrids that are being created, and I think it's... um. I think the University of, I want to say Michigan has made a few. Minnesota's um, one that's done a few. Minnesota. Um, and yeah, Minnesota, definitely. So grapes like Marquette, um, the grapes like Chamboussin, the ones that you descri- uh, mentioned, Andres, Bacanoir. But I know Marquette for sure. And I, um, they actually handle temperatures down to negative 40 in the winter. That's what the claim is, which <laughs> obviously makes them pretty invincible to our winter weather. I don't think we've ever gotten that cold here. I don't think climate change is something that is really discussed too, too much in Ontario. Like, I don't know if it's as front of mind as it is in places like Burgundy or Champagne, where every year, like, I know, Danny, you've probably seen stories in the newsroom around April and May every year, uh, for the past few years anyways, about how disastrous it is to grow grapes in France. Like, with a milder climate here, 
you know, Maroki, you're talking about grapes that can be uh, grown in climates where it gets as cold as minus 40. Um, you know, Ontario is one of the places that might actually benefit a little bit from climate change. If we can get a little bit of a longer growing season, you know, you might eventually see something like Cabernet Sauvignon work its way out to Prince Edward County, maybe in our lifetimes. You know, that's what they've been doing in the wine marketing at in Ontario. Did you know that? I've heard that from wineries a lot when I go visit. They'll be like, you know, we're benefiting from climate change. And I'm like, oh, you know, that's what you want to be telling me. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, you got any thoughts on this? I think it's really interesting. And, and and I think it's pretty cool that we could possibly benefit from climate change. I mean, we already know from people we've spoken to in the past, like, you know, that our climate is supposed to be pretty similar to that of like the Champagne region. So um, I, I if, if it does get warmer, you know, the Niagara region is usually a little bit cooler than it is here. So I, I don't think they're getting anywhere near minus 40, but uh, it's definitely, uh, I guess, not the worst thing for for at least for the wine industry for uh for yeah i mean good lord it's warmer it's it's certainly like we're not advocating to accelerate climate change here on this show but i mean it's just one of the the byproducts of what we're talking about but it is something that you know the wine industry is is really keeping front of mind maybe just bringing the conversation back to hybrids if we're talking about the the um, technology that lets grapes survive in the the colder winters one thing that we might see is I think if you've been an Ontario wine drinker for a long time, you see that the industry isn't growing terribly quickly. I mean, the cost of real estate down in Niagara is very high. And um, if you take a look at our neighbors to the east in Quebec, they actually have a, a rapidly growing wine industry. And their industry is quite reliant on hybrids. And maybe we can ask some questions about whether or not our regulatory body, VQA, has been a little bit slow to respond to allow these grapes to be used in winemaking and i think it i think we could ask some questions why i know from a personal standpoint i haven't really mentioned it mentioned it on this show and i think Maroki, you've been waiting for me to say this is i am not reaching for hybrid made wines as my first choice for the most part and i am waiting to be proven wrong but i generally don't believe that hybrid grapes are of the same quality as those noble french grapes that i was talking about at the beginning of this segment well, the only thing I'm going to say is I don't think I've had or tried too many hybrid grapes, but the only thing I want to say is, I mean, I guess the proof is in the pudding. How many Quebec wines, for example, are winning, you know, Canadian wine awards? Quite a few. And there's actually okay. a few that have like cult followings as well, too, which I haven't had a chance to taste yet, but I'm looking forward to. So, Danny, I'm going to ensure that you don't try a hybrid grape wine until I put one in your hot little hand so that you don't Very get good. your um, opinion skewed by Andre's uh, snobbery. <laughs> <laughs> So here's my thought on hybrid grapes in Ontario. I think we make some um, pretty good hybrid grape wines. Now, the difficulty is hybrid grapes usually, given their hardiness, also produce higher yield. So they are a grape that's like you're getting in abundance. You can get it at a lower cost. Whereas when you're making wine with Vitis vinifera, you likely have to spend a lot more effort in order to craft a good fine wine. So in, you know, add on the top of the fact that the average consumer probably doesn't know what a hybrid grape is. I find that a lot of, you know, producers and producers out there feel free to prove me wrong at any given point. But from my experience, a lot of the hybrid grapes get, you know, made into sort of the 
bottom shelf entry level, the cheapest bottle that they will put on the shelf so they can sell it quickly, which will generate cash flow for the company, and then focus their efforts on making their fine wine that they have to price at a higher price point. So now you have wine available at different price points for an audience that you might not have been able to do if you were only strictly you know, constrained to working with Vitis vinifera. But as a result, you end up with hybrid wine, grapes made, um, wine made from hybrid grapes with a bad name. And I think that's actually an argument that we could even have said about the Ontario wine industry years ago when we were making, you know, when there was a lot of bottom shelf Ontario wine being put on the shelves and we did not realize that we had a fine wine industry in our hands. I, that's an interesting theory. And um, it's definitely something I will take some time to look into, but not something I can do in the last 20 seconds of the show. <laughs> it's okay this will this will be the part one of our long ongoing through line argument of uh Maroki trying to convince everyone to love wine made from hybrid grapes this is definitely not gonna be the last time we'll be talking about this danny thank you so much for bringing the report to our attention absolutely that's been tasting together make sure you tune in next week at five o'clock on 640 toronto Maroki, what are we going to talk about wine probably have a good night. <laughs>